Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name's Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Soto Grande, Spain. And I'm bringing you these podcasts. The aim is very clear to educate, to entertain and to energise the tennis community. Welcome to the next podcast. Welcome to episode 88 of Control the Controllables. Today we have John Morris. John is our first tennis agent that we've had on the show. He made his name in the world of tennis by being Nick Kyrgios' agent for 10, 11 years. And he's now working for the LJ Sports Group, which is run by Roger Federer's coach, Ivan Lubacic. John started his career as a tennis coach and then he's made his way in the world of, as we talk about during the podcast, the world of Jerry Maguire, the world of tennis agents. It's, it's, a, it's another great story. There's, there's lots of fun stories in there. There's lots of learning in there and I'm sure you guys will absolutely love it. So without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to John Morris. So, John Morris, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on, John. And I think you're our first tennis agent. So this is a, this is a first for our listeners. And for, and for those listening, John is currently the senior advisor at LJ Sports Group. And lots of you or lots of people will know him as the agent to Nick Kyrgios that isn't currently the agent to Nick Kyrgios, but spent a long time with Nick. And I'm sure he might share a couple of little stories about Nick, but also get to understand, John, really, tennis still is the vehicle that's taken you along this journey. And I guess, how did your tennis journey start? I got into tennis, I guess it was probably eight or nine and and sort of played club and county stuff as a as a kid uh didn't was nowhere near your level and then sort of got into the coaching side of things uh, sort of late teens um early 20s brought on a, a a good sort of group of young juniors um that that went on and did quite well at certain things um and then i i stepped away for a while i set up a, a promotions and marketing company um, that was was fairly successful, um, but actually, I it, it's one of those things. You sort of eighteen, nineteen, you sort of want to be out of the nightclubs and this sort of stuff. And actually, it's it's like anything when you end up working in it, you don't want to be around it. Around two thousand three, two thousand four, I sold that um, and then went back into the tennis. And a couple of the the, the girls that that I'd been coaching and worked with were, were doing very well. Ended up. Um, linking back up with them and, and coaching them and um it just went from there really i suppose john there's probably a big a big thing around people getting into coaching that don't have the the level of playing ability you know so if you as you said if you're playing kind of county level tennis the players that you were working with were international level players so how how were you able to get into working at an international level as a coach when you didn't have the pedigree as a player? It's it's more sort of how you uh, apply yourself and 
the big thing is listening, listening and watching. Um, if, if, if you don't see it and you don't hear it, you can't coach it. Um, and, and really, uh, for me, that was a, a major part of moving into the coaching side of things. Um, I was able, I was always very tactically, very good. Um, and I, I sort of brushed up on some of the technical side of things and, and I studied applied biomechanics and, and stuff like this under, like did some workshops and, and things like that. So really that, that, all, that all helped. But to answer your point, as you move up and as I moved up with, with the players and, and coached better players, it all came down to relationship really and how you gelled and, and how we clicked. And, and, and it's the trust on both sides. They, they sort of liked the things that I, could, that I was doing and they felt I could make them better. Um, and, and vice versa, really. Because yeah. I think I think where my question comes from, John, is belief. And I, and I think what, what quite a lot of us will have is if we haven't played to a level or we haven't coached to a level or we haven't been something, we then have this kind of doubt of whether we're able to do that. It's almost going into the unknown, which I think then often mm. stops people from actually going into that into that point. Whereas you seem just watching from afar and then as you went into being an agent, someone who's never been scared of taking that, that next step into maybe the unknown level. Is that something that you could reflect on? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I, I think a lot of it is is adaptability. So what, one of the things as a coach I was always very much aware of is, is what I didn't know or what I couldn't give the player. Um, and I wasn't afraid to to go out and get it or source it and bring it into the team. And really, it's it's applying the same principles within a management setup. What I don't know or I can't do or, or I can't deliver on, I've always been open to bringing that in and and, and delivering that. I, I get I get the point. It, it really it, and probably now being a bit older and probably a bit wiser, I I probably would be a bit more fearful. Um, or a, li- a little bit more, at least apprehensive, um, of of jumping into things probably as quick as I did back then. But yeah, I, I always tried to apply the same the same principles, and it's just adaptation. Yeah, very good. And how old were you when the agent, the management piece started to started to grow inside you? How old and how far into your tennis coaching career were you when that happened? I'd been doing little bits on and off because of the promotions and the marketing stuff. I was always doing little bits, even in the coaching, just whether it was helping the center or doing sort of product and apparel deals and racket deals for, for the academies that I was at. But I would say it probably really started to kick off. I was coaching to Mia Babos, yep. a Hungarian girl, um, and she was unhappy with her agent at the time. And, and really, we were traveling and whatever else and spending quite a lot of time together. And I just started to do a bit more for her. And um, and then it sort of it grew. I then there was a couple of British players that I signed. Ricey was one of my first. And then there was a Romanian girl called Anna Bogdan. Uh, she was number one or two in the World Juniors at the time. Um, is now top 100 WTA. Um, and it, it just grew from there, really. It was... And and then I would say, after Timmy, I started. I was working with Timmy Babos and and Tara Moore at the same time, and really had my hands full with Tara, um, and actually opted to 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 work with Tara over Timmy, 
Um, and 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 to be fair, Timmy probably needed more than I was able to give at that stage as well. Um, so so Timmy moved on on a coaching perspective, um, and I I remained coaching Tara, um, but I still managed Timmy. So I was doing that, um, and then really probably Tara was Tara and Ali Ashbadeni were probably my last proper full time tennis coaching gigs. After that, it was um, it was just all agency stuff probably from 2010. Right. Okay. So how does Timia Babosh from Hungary find John Morris and Gosling Tennis Academy? Yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny one. Um, actually, we, we'd first met in an Asian, an Asian swing of events. It was either, I think it was 2007 or 2008, but from a, from a coaching capacity, it was the back end of 2008. Um, it was in South America. I'd, I'd taken a, a, a an LTA group actually that Paul Hutchins had put together. Um, I took some, uh, some guys away to South America and um, yeah, just ended up chatting to Timmy and getting on with her dad. And she joined in hitting with some of the boys a couple of the times. And, and then towards the end of the trip, we exchanged details and, and then um, they came, came over for a trial and it just went from there. Because the dad, I know the Hungarians quite well. I've coached a couple of the Hungarian girls, and I know the dad's a coach, and he's got he's got his own setup in Hungary, and he's quite a well respected coach in Hungary. So, so to make that move seems like it, it seems like a strange move, but obviously a good move. Yeah, no, the, uh, the dad's name is Chuba. He's an unbelievable coach, really, really good coach, um, and he he's worked with Susie, Timmy's sister. I think she's the, one of the only two-time NCAA winners in singles. And she was former top five junior and, and, and the dad's coach, Agnes Savai and people like this. So uh, for me, I, I very much felt the pressure straight away. Um, and and I, I was very much aware of the trust and the responsibility that he had put in me. Um, and, and still, thankfully to this day, we're still friends and we're still we're still close and, and uh, yeah, huge, huge respect for him and what he does and, and what he's done. Um, but yeah, it, it was more everywhere in Hungary at the time. It was, it, it was, they, they just played on clay. Um, Timmy's a big, strong girl has huge weapons and, um, but really tactically played very much a clay court style. And I think, Looking back now, that the the focus was more to sort of try and get her to play more of an all court game and, and get her more comfortable on hard and faster surfaces. Um, so, yeah, maybe a little bit of a knock on my ego. Maybe it wasn't my coaching; it was more the the facility. There you go. If he didn't think you were a good coach, he wouldn't have made the move, John. Either you know, he's not he's not he's not a stupid guy. So it's you've got to take some credit there as well. But if I if moving you now from being a a tennis coach to a to a tennis agent it can't have been an easy decision and i guess finances often drive these decisions that we make and you know how did you know that you were going to be able to i guess make a living in, in the sports agent world and was it a big difficult decision at the time yeah it was although although really what what drove it is i actually had an accident um i i slipped over um shattered my 
fibula and snapped the ligament that controls the dorsus movement in my foot. So I was actually in a wheelchair for about six or seven months um, with my foot locked with a bar across the front. And um, because obviously you can't stitch ligaments, they have to regrow naturally. And I would go back to the hospital and he would, they would each week tighten the screw a little bit to increase the, the chance of the ligament growing. And, and it was really that that sort of drove me more towards the, the management side. I got to the point, and, and maybe a little bit fear, fearfully, I, th I thought, well, look, I don't really want to be relying on my body physically to, to, to be coaching as a 50, 60-year-old. Maybe I should be looking at some other avenues. And it was really, it was really that, that that pushed me over the edge and made the decision for me to, to, to jump in on the, on the management side of things. And from a, a financial perspective, um, I got quite lucky. Uh, I, I went out to Tarbs to scout some, some kids um and and matt wilcox the the guy who was um the tennis director at gosling put me in touch with a guy uh, called clinton coleman and we met whilst we were in tubs and long story short clinton and i ended up becoming business partners and and secured some investment from some very affluent private investors who who funded the the creation of of gsc which was our company um, and it just went from there. It wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination. And, and now again, looking back, would I do it again? Like, no, it was, it was bloody crazy really to do what I did. But, um, but yeah, I guess a bit of naivety and as they say, ignorance is bliss. So I can, I can certainly relate to that. I've said that, I've said that a few times on the podcast with setting up the Academy in Spain. Number one attribute has been naivety, 100%. You, you just don't, you don't think about it. It's one of those things. It's like when you, when you look at the end goal and you, from, from a starting point, you probably look at it and, and as you've done with the Academy and you think if you, if you really look at the end goal from the start point, it, it almost is unattainable or almost impossible but it's it's like that old trick of, of sort of teaching a dog to jump if you raise the bar by a centimeter a day or whatever by the end of the year the dog's jumping a couple of meters or whatever so if i'd known what i know now i probably wouldn't have done it but but that that being said everything i've done and everything i've i've been involved in i would do again so yeah no well done on being being so brave to do it and and i think in terms of the role, you've mentioned there a little bit about the scouting, you know, going to tournaments and scouting. So let's say you're at Tarbs watching the best juniors in the world. Why is somebody going to some tennis coach from Gosling who's just chancing his arm to set up a, a sports agency group over going with the established IMGs, Octagon, all of these type of companies. How did you manage to get it off the ground? The interesting thing, actually, so, so since then, which I think was 2009, 2010, something like that, um, maybe a little bit earlier, there were, the, the bigger companies weren't really going to the, the younger junior events and scouting, believe it or not. And now they are. They're everywhere, and, and they've had to. Um, I, I've recently just left IMG a few months back. And, and one of the things that the, the, the people in charge there have, have really opened their eyes to it are these boutique agencies. So whether it was GSC or it was Lawrence Frankopan with Star Wings or Seb Grosjean with Tenium and 
things like this that, that there's more competition now and um the agents and the companies are are signing players earlier and younger than than they ever did so in order to to get there and get in with the 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 best up and comers they've got to go out to the events and sign the players at at a younger age and from a moral standpoint it it seems to me that these big companies doing that if we sign 25 of the best players maybe one of them will come through but from like i say the moral standpoint is signing all of those players the right thing to do with which when you sign them up then you lose their eligibility for us college you know and there's implications outside of that yeah so so that's that's actually always been one of the big things for me um is being upfront and being honest on on those points uh, actually at gsc we always had a disclaimer at the bottom just to make sure that that people were well, parents primarily were aware that by signing they're giving away their their college options and to be fair it's always it's always important that the players that are signed are the right players you you get an inkling quite early on and and for me i wouldn't go and sign necessarily an 11 or 12 year old it's always better to do it a bit later and obviously the later it is the easier it is to to predict but i i think there's a a massive like moral obligation to be very upfront with the parents and with the players to say that look if you're signing with us at this point this is what you're potentially giving away and um and and if there is any doubt in the in the parents or the players minds you can't sign you can't sign it's just not and you, and and for me personally i would never i would never force that either it's just the 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 path is too long and too too winding uh, and 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 i what i also look at is is just offshoots of that same path um and and invariably when a player is making it they will go down some offshoots and 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 hit some dead ends on on their on their path and on their journey um and and i think with the role of the agent and the manager within a, a, a young player's career is to help minimize those errors that take them down those dead ends but yeah for me it's as a family that there's any in, inclination or desire to go to college see it out there's no rush if you're yeah. good you're going to be good at the end of college yeah. so don't rush yeah good advice and again just for those listeners so to kind of bring you in line with that if you if you sign with an agent or sign any management contracts you are technically a professional and us college is only available for amateurs so i mean i have it personally actually evan hoyt who i who i coach he was unable to go to college he got pretty much to the last level because he'd signed a document with an agent when he was 12 which actually he's an honest kid so and he's got an honest family so they disclosed it and i think john where my question comes from i go even back i know it's a long time ago from when i played tennis but i remember almost any of the best british kids got signed at 12 13 14 but actually really all they got was a couple of pairs of adidas shoes during the grass court season it wasn't like they were signing and really getting much for it yet yet what they were losing was this potential kind of eligibility and right to still be an amateur and and, and i'm sure it's more sophisticated nowadays yeah it is it's, it's, it's a lot different now and to be fair look 
when I was at IMG, they they are they're the biggest sports and entertainment company in the world, and and certainly in with in my experience there, they they're very selective on who they sign. They, this they they get hit with a stick quite often that they try and sign everyone and they don't and and they are very selective now on who they go after because of those reasons and, and actually now because there is so much competition they can't sign everyone because everyone talks so it, they can't just be providing a couple of pairs of grass court shoes during the during the grass court season because Bob at Octagon is is telling them that they can get X amount of money and and five pairs of shoes and mm-hmm. and then they may be trying to find little, little Sally who who is unsigned but she's listening to Bob and 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 Pete and they're getting this and that and all of a sudden she's saying what's the point so I guess with especially now with with the internet and social media and and the, and the world is so small and the tennis world so small anyway. People talk, so it it really is all about the service. And if you're not delivering, people people find out, they hear about it, and 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 it really will impact you as how you operate. So I have to be I have to be fair to the guys at IMG. They really are certainly in my time uh, very very selective, and and the, the the recruiting and scouting process was was very sophisticated as well. And when we when we think of sport agents, I'm sure everybody listening as well, they just think of show me the money, you know. And it's 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 the Jerry Maguire, it's the absolute classic, and and that is it's certainly and and I when I look back, I wanted to be a sports agent when I grew up, you know. And I think it, it really that that film captured our hearts in terms of how it is, how similar to it to sports agency is that film. And what are the roles of of a tennis agent? Yeah, look, there, there, there's some characteristics and and whatnot in the film that that play out in real life. Um, but it, it, it is it's a Hollywood movie. It's it, that's that's what it is. But um, John, please tell me that Nick Kyrgios was in his kitchen with all of his family. I can imagine he's he's got a big old family. Dancing and singing. Come on, John, show me the money. Come on, John, show me the money. Please tell me you did that. Yeah, look, I've, I've had plenty of funny times with them in their kitchen, and there's always um, Mama Kyrgios is an unbelievable cook, and we'd often spend spend some time there when I was down in Oz in the in the in the kitchen feasting. But um, yeah, no, I can safely say Nick's Nick's. I've seen Nick dance, but I've not seen him dance and sing. Show me the money. <laughs> so yeah so what so what are the main roles that as a, of a sports agent tennis agent so primarily uh, you, you're in you're responsible for for their off-court business primarily the, the commercial success uh the marketing and 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 growing their social media base their social media platform and footprint and making sure that the engagement uh, around their social media is growing obviously companies nowadays they're all looking at that they want to know what what the footprint and what the the followers is like, the audience, and and then how engaged are are those followers, which obviously eliminates the 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 sneaky agent that maybe wants to buy their athletes and followers. But yeah, look, you you you're in charge of the commercial side of things, uh, the 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 off court business. There's many other things. Your scheduler, you, you for most of my clients, I will advise and guide and build the the tournament schedule. Then 
pre-event or pre pre um, pre tournament, if it's a if it's a, a big event, you've got you, you're doing their pre-event schedule. So obviously, you don't step on the coach's toes. You let the coach build out the the the, the practice schedule and and the physios and the fitness guys. But then outside of that, you you're planning sponsorship commitments, media, that sort of stuff, and then you would help and advise on the travel, the visas, the the bookings of hotels, that sort of stuff. And then depending on how close you are with 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 your clients, you're you're advising on teams. I hate to say it, but hiring and firing of people. And then sometimes you're part counsellor or you're you're part coach, you're part confidant. Other times you're you're a punch bag or, or a sounding board. There's with 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 agents, especially in tennis, it, the, the the remit and the role is so vast. And and I actually, there's not many player-agent relationships where I don't think they're close. I, th- I think most agents and their players, there's a close bond there. I don't I don't think there's any real just transactional relationships. It's such a a personal industry, and and. And the relationship between player and, and agent is is always one where it's close. And 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 I, yeah, I just think the roles because of that, the role is very much more than just a, a transactional one. I had Jez Green on the on the podcast last week, and I asked him this question as as well around relationships, and and I would imagine as an agent, someone like you said who spends so much time with the clients and is seeing them in their most almost personal way rather than when they're in professional way on the court or in the gym. Is there a danger that one, you're too professional and, and almost a little bit too um, uppity and don't get close enough? And is there a danger that you can become too pally and a little bit almost too close to them? How do you get that balance? And have, have you seen examples of maybe where it's gone one way or the other? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. And, and I would probably say that 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 for me i i even in my coaching life i've walked that line closely because i also think in order to know that the the athlete at their best you have to know them personally you have to get to the 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 real core of them as people and find out what makes them tick but certainly from a coaching perspective on a an agency or, or, or a manager's perspective it's important to to get to know the player personally to know what things they want to do when when you can sort of push on the commercial side of things or, or know know how they react to certain things leading up into a major are they somebody that that just likes to take their mind off of the tennis and do a lot of promo and and be be around talking doing media and this sort of stuff and just be away from the tennis or are they somebody that, that actually is it's, it's tournament major time they just want to shut down and and switch off but to to your point yes there is there is um a a very real danger of that and and making sure that you you don't become too pally but but equally i think if you if you be if you're too uppity too professionally and too too sort of stiff upper lip you you run the 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 risk of not really embracing the team and the environment you don't want to when you step into the, the players team they're with the coaches the hitters the physio be seen as sort of this this domineering or this this dictatorial uh individual where everybody has to be putting on an act and can't be themselves 
equally you don't want to be somebody that's sort of this friend who can't really get anything done uh, it is it is it is a balance um and, and it's something for, certainly from my perspective I, i've been acutely aware of that and what about your relationship with the coach how important is that and how do you manage that especially if you're the hirer but also the firer yeah that's 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 a that's a tough one for me obviously the 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 coach never really will want want to spend i i've never really had coaches that want to spend a huge amount of time with me outside of being on site funnily enough it happens more with with coaches of players that i don't work with that that they'll socialize with or go for a beer or a drink with in the evening or a meal or, or that sort of stuff or uh, and and sort of socialize with but I've never been in a situation where I've worked with a a, a a tennis coach of a player that I've not liked being around or or I've not felt is in, is good for the player and things like this. And I've never and and I never have and I never would allow any of my feelings, whether positive or negative, really in that sense, to to uh, for, for for the player to hire or fire a coach based on how how I feel. Is my my thoughts or feelings in that sense are not important. It's what what the work is going on with the with the player that's that's most important. And I would imagine working with Mister Kyrgios, there hasn't been a whole lot of hiring and firing to be done anyway. <laughs> no, no, there hasn't. There hasn't. He's, uh, he, and and look, he he's one thing you've got to, you've got to say, and it might not like it people might not like it but he has always said he's doing it his way always said even from when i first met him as a 50 he's always done things his his way and and i've tried to coerce him to do things a certain way or or differently or try this coach or try that coach and and credit where it's due he he has tried so you so you have to sort of respect that but he's he's always done things his way and and yeah, he just hats off, really. If that's the way he wants to be, and that's the way he's doing it, he he's happy doing it that way. And 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 he only has to really look at himself in the mirror. So all credit to him. And it seems like with with Nick, because he didn't have really a coach through the time that you were with him, that looking from afar it almost felt like your role was even bigger with him because you almost had to fill some of that void. You know, you were a face that he looked to in the crowd. You know, did you feel that as well? Yeah, look, we, we did. We, we It didn't happen for the last few years, but we went through periods where I, I, I would be doing the coaching. I would be on the court. I'd be on the practice court. We'd be going through pre-match stuff, post-match stuff. It would, it would go in, in fits and starts. It would be... For a period of weeks, and then and then it would be nothing. He would say, "No, look, I'm good this week. I, leave me to do my thing." And and the other weeks, he'd be like, "Oh, can you come on the, on the practice court?" And as I said, last couple of years, it has happened less and less. But yeah, it, it was, and 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 really with all of his guys, and that's the, that's the thing about Nick with his team being so small. But yeah, it, it was, and 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 really with all of his guys, and that's the, that's the thing about Nick with his team being so small he, he he relies on 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 the people that he has around him a lot and 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 there is a, a sort of a, a merging or or a 
a blurring of lines within roles, um, people doing more than they were hired and, and brought on to do. But um, but yeah, that, that that's just that's just the way it is. That's that's the way that he he likes his team, and 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 yeah, he keeps it small for that that very reason, really. And how did that relationship start? Because again, forgive me if I've got this wrong, but he that was the catalyst for you really becoming a a, a well-known tennis agent you know the and that's that's how you've built your name and obviously gone on and will continue to go on so how did that relationship start it's, it's funny actually so he he's written about this and and talked about it and 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 i've never really sort of said my piece but yeah it was i first saw him i think it was 2010 aussie he was in qualies and and I think he got a wild card into the doubles, um, and he was sort of wrapped up in all these bandages and carrying carrying injuries. And then the following year, he I, so he, I, I look sorry I, I regress. So I, I liked the way he played. Thought wow, this kid's talented. He's got something. But he was just a wild card into junior doubles. So thought right, let's let's see how he goes. But then I looked him up, and he was actually he was actually the youngest player on the ITF rankings at the time. He was the only 95 uh, at the time with a ranking. So I just kept an eye on him and just, yeah, kept kept seeing, kept an eye out for his results and, and things like this. And and then the following year, um, he was in the in the singles again on a on a main on a main draw wildcard. And he made the quarters, I think it was. And I just loved watching him, as I do now. I I, I don't work with him anymore but I, I would go and watch him every day yeah. he's just he's so exciting to watch I just like the way he played so so again I found I, I, I got a hold of his contact details I sent him a couple of messages and uh, no reply no reply um, so I I messaged him on and off for a few months and just got nowhere and then bumped into him at Wimbledon and uh, his parents were over I just said, oh, Nick, blah, blah, blah. It's me that's been sending you the messages. And I sort of got a a, a grunt or two. And oh, my mum and dad are over there. Go talk to them. And, and that's really how it how it came about. And um, I sat with his parents and talked through what what we could do and what we what we were about. And and um, and if they needed sort of financial assistance, we, we were able to help and things like this. And they were with the federation um, and, and and getting some support from TA. So on that side, it was all good. But they they were comforted to know that um, that if they they ever got to the stage where they did need it, then then it was there. And yeah, it just grew from there really. Um, and then yeah, we came became incredibly close. He was like a little brother to me. If like the last ten years or so, a bit less, I was probably with him more than I was with my own family. And and certainly him and his family more than I was, I was with my own family. So yeah, no, very fond of him. Very fond of him. He's a he's a, he's a good guy and um, a, a great entertainer on the court. Um, can do some amazing things with a, a racket in his hand. And yeah, ultimately as well, he's he's growing the game. A lot of kids want want to play tennis because of him. And that's regardless of what people say about him or what some journalists write. That's that's something that you you can't buy. There's many many great players and great champions that have been, and will continue to be that don't have that pulling power. So, yeah, all, all respect to him for that. So, who is the real Nick Kyrgios? 
I actually think I actually think on his social media, especially on his his Insta, he he's, he shows people. He's he, he's he's a Canberra boy. He he likes being at home. He likes being around his family. Um, likes hanging out with his friends, going for coffee, playing ball, playing video games. That, that's Nick. It's I I, I that's that, I don't think that's any secret. He, he he's is almost hiding in plain sight because people have, have, have sort of many many years sort of tried to uh, and, and have asked me and I've asked him and people around him who the real Nick Kyrgios is but he, he doesn't hide it it's yep. yeah he, he's just a he's a homeboy he likes his video games he likes um likes hanging out and and doing his things with his friends and and yeah that's that's who he is and he he must have been that they talk about there being no such thing as bad publicity. So he must have been an agent's dream, but I would imagine also an agent's nightmare. So tell us about the dreamy bit first. Well, uh, as I said, he, he he brings people into the game and he, he's electric. He he can. Uh, there's there's not really many, if any, players outside of your your sort of your your, your top four or five, if you include Stan. So Roger, Rafa, Novak, Andy, Stan. There's not really many that can pack out um, Arthur Ashe Stadium for a day session. Nick's done it consistently. So in that that sort of thing, I I always the, the way he goes about things and the way he the the the, the promo he he creates around um, around his matches. He's he's very very good. He's he's very himself is very media and marketing savvy. He's electric. He he can. Uh, there's there's not really many, if any, players outside of your your sort of your 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 top four or five, if you include Stan. So Roger, Rafa, Novak, Andy, Stan. There's, there's not really many that can pack out um, Arthur Ashe Stadium for a day session. Nick's done it consistently. So in that that sort of thing, I I always. The, the way he goes about things and the way he the the the, the promo he he creates around um, around his matches he's he's very very good he's he's very himself is very media and marketing savvy it's almost like the 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 build up that you used to get like the 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 the, the Rafa matches oh it's like a it's like a heavyweight boxing the the build up I remember as a kid like getting up in the middle of the night and watching heavyweight fights taking place in Vegas with my dad and and it's that same sort of build up and there's not there's not many people in sport that 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 can create that sort of anticipation and, and build up and that that electricity around things especially if he's on and firing there's there's yeah he's unbelievable to watch the the downside and the the difficulty of the nightmares are some of the things that went on and sort of it's yeah they're having to deal with those sort of things the the the, the press and the media and 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 actually again this when i talk about walking that fine line of the the professionalism to the and the personal when when he did misbehave on the court and then people would go online or or write articles in newspapers or appear on tv shows talking about him and trashing him personally that really that that's what got me that's what what hurt me and again because of that that personal professional i guess line divide uh or, or blurring of the line 
uh, I, I would also take it personally, which is not always a good thing to do. I remember one year at the at the U.S. Open, they were they were saying that he uh, they were diagnosing him with all sorts of things in in the pre match build up uh, on on I think it was Tennis Channel or ESPN, and I I thought you guys are you just okay you, you you've maybe won x amount of grand slams and 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 you're in that position to commentate and talk but you don't know this person you don't know their you don't know them at all you've got no right to to be talking about mental health and 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 this sort of stuff so um yeah so that's what i that's what i found hard the 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 negative press and, and and that's all part of the job and you've got to deal with it it was more and 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 i always said if he didn't do it they couldn't report on it yeah it was it was more the creation of a story and 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 the the add-ons the, the little cherry on the cake of sort of throwing in a comment or a or or, or an opinion that that actually wasn't factual yeah. i think everything that he did that that was out there and was reported on factually that that's fine that's people's jobs but uh, 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 yeah i just didn't really like the, the the stuff where where it became opinion pieces and people sort of acting as amateur psychologists and that sort of stuff yeah. that but was I, where it was for me became difficult but i would imagine with with a nick the commercial benefits around someone like him only grows the more the more that those things happen so even if I, if we take rome you know seeing nick kyrgios and just seeing the gifts and seeing jumping on social media and seeing him smash a chair on the court that's now not just a tennis audience <laughs> that's that's now a global audience of people that want to be entertained so even though i would imagine there's a little bit of crisis management around that on a on a micro level from a macro picture that has to be good commercially yeah well i i think what it did um with all of these things is it, it opened him up it opened him up to an audience that wasn't there for him in tennis but also on the flip side it opened tennis up to an audience that it wouldn't normally have yep. and and actually uh, uh, Craig Tiley I'm going back a couple of years now Craig Tiley the the chief exec of tennis australia and the tournament director of the australian open he he said to me that he did some market research and and Nick was bringing in unprecedented numbers of of new fans to the game, which is, is only going to be a good thing for the whole tennis ecosystem. If you look at it, um, new new fans spend money. That that you know yourself. You 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 you're old members at tennis clubs who've been a member of sort of uh, tennis club for sort of 40, 50 years or whatever. They they probably haven't bought a racket in twenty years, and they. they sort of wear their shoes until they've got holes in the end and probably buy one tube of balls a year. Um, new new fans are also, it sounds sort of crude, but new fans are new money. They spend money in, in the game, rackets, shoes. And, 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 and also as well, I think one of the things that, that Nick does that nobody else in tennis does, it. Nick is very much what I would call a, a sneakerhead. Um, with the stuff that he's done with with Kyrie and things like that, there's some real crossover of people now buying products just because they want to have a Kyrgios Kyrie shoe. Um, yeah. Whereas ordinarily tennis shoes are, are bought by tennis players. Yeah. Um, 
I know some young young youngsters near where I live, and they've they don't play tennis, and but they've gone out and bought the the Kyrgios shoe because they they want to have it. It's they play basketball, and it's an offshoot of the Kyrie shoe and things like that. So, yeah, from a commercial aspect, it did it, it really did widen his audience, and, and but also I think tennis's audience as well, without sounding sort of arrogant or 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 over the top he he really has opened tennis up to people that didn't or wouldn't play similar actually to to agassi probably 20 years before him i couldn't agree more john i know last year last year at wimbledon and i was there as a coach there was one ticket i made sure i got outside of doing my job of coaching my player and that was nick kyrgios against rafael nadal it was, you know, and and I remember, yeah. I remember him playing on court three, in the players' lounge on the balcony in his first round match against like, Jordan Thompson. Maybe anyway, it was against whoever it yeah, was, well, and it was absolutely rammed. And he was, he was on the floor. He was rolling around. He was talking to the linesman, and it was pure entertainment. And and that centre court when he played Nadal the tension that you could feel in that stadium on that day, and it was a third or fourth round clash. I'm sorry, but it has to be good for tennis. It, it has to be, you know, and yeah, I think yeah. any old fuddy duddies yeah. that are saying he swears and he breaks a racket and he's this role model and he shouldn't do that. Come on. You know, I think for us to be able to expand the beautiful sport that we have and have a character that can do that. I don't know. Personally, I, I met him a few times in the juniors, my boys actually beat him in the semi-finals of Aussie Open Juniors in 2012. So I got to know him a little bit. But then seeing the charity work that he does and all of those things, I think he seems like a really good dude who's who's bringing and opening up a lot of things for tennis. So so well done to you on on that part. I do want to move us away from Nick Kyrgios. Um, as as much of a, an entertainer and amazing person he is from our, our sport and to get that insight and just kind of take you into what you're doing now you know at lj sports group you know uh, spending most of your time mainly working with one tennis player so give us a little bit of an inside information on what your job entails now yeah so, so lj sports group is a is a an advisory group um set up by ivan lubacic uh, who is obviously roger federer's coach um i think he's number three in the world himself so it's a very very experienced um in 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 the tennis world um yeah so he he came together with with uh, verona financial which is a financial services company based in in finland and, and luxembourg and they created this this group and really what 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 i like about it and actually when i left img my my focus actually was was to move more into football uh, I, I got my football license earlier in the year as an intermediary and and um and 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 the the goal for me was to do do more football, and um, I just saw that that LJ had made some some good hires and, and and good appointments, and one of them was Richard Evans from the ATP, who's a friend of mine. Him and I caught up and had a a discussion, and sort of myself, Richard, and Ivan got on a call. We sort of discussed about me coming over, and um, what what really got me was that we're moving away from the labels of agents and agencies. Rather than being an agent and and being an agency, it's a group. We're an advisory group of experts. Ivan takes care of the the, the performance side of things. We've got 
the financial services and legal team, they're experts in what they do. And we've got myself and Richard who, who advises on the, on the commercial sponsorship and business side of things. Um, and really, it's, it's a full service group that, that is helping our athletes and our clients be the best they can be on the field of play and off. And, and really that resonated with me. One, because obviously I used to coach and, and I'm very much in, uh, intrigued and, and still interested in the development of a player uh, from, from the young ages right the way up to the top. But obviously as a, as a, a commercial advisor, manager, that sort of thing, it resonated with me too. So it's great. I'm working across several sports, tennis, football and Formula One. Um, and and working some with some great people and 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 really enjoying it. And what are some of the differences in the other sports that you've kind of picked up? All the similarities. Well, actually, it, it, it's funny. Actually, I I know diddly squat about Formula One. Um, I I I don't really watch it. Um, but just understanding the structures of the the teams and and things like that is is has been a great learning curve for me. I was always of the opinion that a, play, a, a player, a driver would be offered a, 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 a seat at a team, paid X amount, and they would deliver on on X amount of races a year and, and race X amount of times a year. It's not really done like that. There's, there's probably half a dozen to maybe 10 drivers in Formula One that are paid by the teams, and the rest of it is the individuals bringing their, their sponsorship and their sponsorship ne- network to the team so in order to get a seat. So that that was all new to me. And then obviously on the football side of things, it's everybody talks about the money that is is, is in football and 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 whatnot. But it the, the structure of how deals are done it, 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 is is very different to tennis. Um and I actually think that if football copied a, or football could learn a little bit from tennis, I think, right, in the okay. way that, that things are, are done. So primarily a lot of a lot of the 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 agents in football the the fee i don't know say say an athlete is earning 10 million pounds a year um from a club um the athlete's fees are on top of that that amount of money so so if they're it wouldn't be 20% but say they're on 10% that that deal then becomes 11 a year uh, over the course of the contract as opposed to the player receiving 9 and the athlete getting his commission, whereas in tennis it is very much the the, the athlete play, pays for the service. It comes out of the fee. So I think in, in football, if they did copy the tennis model a bit more, I think you'd have players taking a bit more of an interest in who they have representing them and things like that. Okay, so that I guess that, that comes down to an accountability thing. So just so I understand this correctly, John, Football players almost don't mind who their agent is because they're not the ones paying them. Essentially, yeah, yeah. It's um, oh, wow. in, in in tennis, yeah. Uh, it, it in tennis, it's it's coming out of the athlete's fee, whereas in football, it, it don't generally doesn't happen like that. And also, as well, if you look at it, athletes in in football or footballers are are now engaging with commercial agents or or, or companies to sell and do their commercial off-field stuff because the on-field agent actually either doesn't have the inclination to do it or doesn't have the ability to. And and all of that comes around with with 
like the PR, the media, this sort of stuff. I think if you look at someone like uh, Rashford and, and his team, they're doing a, a great job and they're doing something that is sort of all all encompassing now. Um, and, and, and I think there's, there's no question that Rashford is, is standing out and set apart from a lot of his, his players around his age group, especially in the UK, with the work that they've done. Um, and, and it's not just about the PR. Rashford obviously done, done, done a great thing about making sure that kids have, uh, 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 are not going hungry and things like that. But the, the way that his team have, have activated that behind the scenes yeah hats off very good and and in terms of the commercial landscape during covid 2020 and moving into 2021 what what effect is is this whole kind of craziness having on having on that yeah well i, th- I think um there's there's been and will continue to be quite quite severe and, and large impacts really on the industry um, if you look at some of the bigger agencies that have got tournaments and things like that and and maybe haven't necessarily got the revenues on their on their player talent side um, and rely heavily on the on the event side of things with their events being cancelled and and things like that that's really gonna have a, a knock-on effect I think for some of these these bigger agencies a lot of the the, the players will have minimum play requirements in their in their agreements that obviously they've not been able to, to meet. So, so a lot of the players are going to get reduced on, on their, their commercial deals, which in turn is obviously going to have a knock-on effect for the, the companies they're with and the, and, the, and the agents that look after them. But, but that, saying that, I think as we move out of, out of this, whenever that might be, I do think people, people companies and brands are going to be spending. I do think that, 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 that companies will be looking to get on the front foot and, and really market what they're doing and, and, and what they have to offer uh, as people co- as as the world comes out of this pandemic. So I do think, like in anything, when there's tragedy, tragedy, there's opportunity. And as harsh as that sounds, I think there will be. I think as we move out of this, things will pick up. And is that something you as an agent can quantify to the company commercially so i'm a whatever i'm a i'm a big commercial commercial company and i i want to sponsor nick kyrgios i want to sponsor one of your tennis players how can you prove to me that it's worth me investing 100 grand 200 grand whatever it might be but and that that that's part of the 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 conundrum really there's no i think if it gets to a point where having to convince you we're off on the wrong foot but it's more it's more about what uh, understanding what your your business objectives are um what you're looking to achieve in the marketplace why tennis and then within tennis if it's a if it's a specific player what are they doing what what's the character like how how do they resonate with with the demographic of of your customers your, your audience for example you, you wouldn't necessarily put Roger Federer with with Monster Energy. You just wouldn't do it. So, so it, it, it literally it, it it's it's what the brand alignment with the athlete brand alignment. So it's, it's the it's the it, it it comes down to several different things. But but ultimately, moving out of this, um, 
I, I, th- I, I actually think that there'll be more brands and companies reaching out to agents and, and people in tennis than vice versa. John, if I could just move you back, my last couple of questions. I, I want to, as we are a tennis podcast, I think it's great to get those insights into the commercial side. I think it's great to get those insights into football and other sports. But my last couple of questions around tennis what's the difference between managing a male? tennis player and a female tennis player and also how those deals are shaped as well that's a, that's a good question so primarily the, the the women have to sadly them and again like any 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 business it, it, the market dictates sadly on uh, women in sport are still not getting the recognition and the, the parity as as they they should and and in tennis is certainly um we talk about the the equal prize monies and and things like this around the tournaments but there's still a, a large imbalance between the commercial side of things for, for men and women um I, th- I think it was only the last couple of years actually i think serena was had a huge hand in this um was that I mentioned the minimum play requirements a, a few moments ago around the pan- pandemic, um, but actually, if if a woman athlete left the tour or, or left her field of competition to have a baby, um, she she fell foul of 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 her minimum play or minimum compete requirements, um, which then obviously massively impact them. So since Serena. Um, became a mom and, and and sort of highlighted that that's changed but all, all those sort of things you wouldn't ordinarily look at you you would think oh look it's contract a contract for player one and contract for player two man and women is that the same they're not they're, they're very different and 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 thankfully that that's changing but on a on a, a financial footing that there still needs some some a way to go, and and a lot of it is deemed around the marketability of, of of women. Certainly within the agencies, you may sign a guy who you know is going to be top ten or, or uh, top twenty or top thirty, but with within, but but on the women's side, they need to be perhaps top ten, um, even though they may be from the same market, similar sort of appeal as, as far as characteristics and personality are concerned um but the, the woman just has to be better and it's yeah it's not really fair not really fair as far as obviously the day the day-to-day things are concerned and that's not that's not um when i say not fair that's not um any agency's fault or any company's fault that's more that's just as as the market dictates. That's just yep. market factors. Nothing that we can do there. Um, but then, on a day to day situation, obviously with the with the women, especially now, players being signed younger. Obviously, I would. I've got a daughter. I wouldn't be letting her travel and go off with 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 people that I didn't know. So usually, with the where the women are concerned, they've got more family around. So there's that side of things that need to be looked at and managed when you you're dealing with with females you, you there's almost a, a managing of their family and running things by the family in order to to get things done whereas that doesn't really 
happen as much on the on the guys. You, it, it's it's maybe go you, between yourself directly and the male player, or maybe they have a a friend or a confidant or that they travel with that you're you're dealing with, or maybe one family member. Yep. Whereas on the women's side, it's it, it's a bit more a bit more complex. Um, you're dealing with more people than just just the athlete. Yeah, and we and, and it's not a it's not a subject that you necessarily want to always jump into because of how people might judge us on talking about it. But I guess to stress, we're not giving our opinions here. We're giving the, the facts of how it seems to be. So if we look on, on the women's side, I would imagine that the two, and I'm sure I've read this, the two commercially over the years has been Anna Kornikova and Maria Sharapova. And not to say yeah. they haven't had results, but it is very looks image related. And then the big one right now also seems to be Naomi Osaka, who seems to have opened up the Asian market with with what she's doing. And I think my put my point on that, John, is that a lot of people give that a lot of stick, and whether we like it or not, like you said, that's what the market is dictating. But if we then go to like a Nikai Lai Davidenko who was six or seven in the world. I don't even think he had a tennis racket sponsor. So there is really yeah. this, there is an image, there is an image side on, on the men's and women's to a degree as well, it seems. Yeah, no, of course. And, 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 and it all, it all comes down to marketability. So if, if you look like Anna Kornikova, you, you're, you're marketable. That's the fact of life. Yeah. If you, look like Nikolai Davidenko, sadly you're not. But if you look like Feliciano Lopez or Fernando Vadasco, you are. It's it, it's it's maybe not the best way to, to go about things. I, I remember if you go back to to the Kornikova era, um, Hingis was, was wiping the floor with her on the court and far, far better than her, but commercially couldn't hold a a torturer she couldn't get anywhere near her so yeah. it, it's in that sense it works both ways it, it, it's it's um yeah you, you you get the upside for looking like that but then yeah it's but you, you, without necessarily having the ability but nick kyrgios is i don't know his exact ranking but he's 45 in the worldish you know hasn't i don't believe broken top 10 hasn't got close to winning a grand slam yet and i would imagine he is in the top 5 most marketable marketable male players yeah yeah no I, I wouldn't um i wouldn't disagree with that and again it's it's, it's how he carries himself he's a good looking lad uh, he brings something different and that's yeah that that sells people people want different they want new and 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 that's what he is but, but then you've got guys behind him Coming up now, um, Denis Shapovalov, um, Felix Augier. These guys are super marketable too. There's always there's always uh, different caveats to that marketability, market where they're from, that sort of stuff. Um, for example, if you had a guy from India who can break a hundred or, or you're sitting on a superstar or yeah. if you, or, or you get a, a, a guy from China. Yep. Um, they've never had a guy break the top hundred. Yep. If you can get a guy from China, break a hundred, you, you're, you're off to the races. Yep. Um, so, so all these things play a part where they're from, what they look like, how marketable they are, the character, what the, what their mic skills are like, how they present on a microphone or in front of a camera all, all play a huge part. 
Come on then, who are who are the who are the players for us to watch out for on the men's and women's side? Who are the up and comers that maybe some of the listeners haven't heard of yet? Uh we we've got a really good Croatian lad in our, our group, Dino Priznic. Um we've got a young uh, British kid, Fabio Nastola, very good lefty. Uh older uh, a bit older up. Um you you've got uh Shintaru from Japan. He's with IMG. Um there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of good players coming through. A lot. On British side, Emma Raducanu and the girls. Um, I think she'll be top ten. Got a Dear. lot of belief in her. Yeah, she's 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 good. I signed her when I was at IMG. Um she's she's still at IMG. Um but yeah, I, I've got a lot of belief in her. I think she's she's really good. Then you've got Danish girl, uh, Clara Towson, yep. um, with a, a girl from Andorra, Kazen, Kazin Saver, um, which is number one or two. Um, and then obviously the other ones, Coco Golf, and then Felix, um, Dennis. These guys are they're not really secrets anymore. These guys are Alcaraz. Well Alcaraz. How much have you seen him? Yes. A little bit. So he he's managed um, by my friend um, Albert Molina um, out of IMG in in Spain. Um, yeah, he's in good hands there. Carlos Alcaraz is 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 the real deal. He's the real deal. The real deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he's a good one. Yeah, we saw him. We saw him actually two years in a row. So I was in Tunisia last year, and. Evan Evan Hoyt played this tall, this tall ginger Italian, and in the second round, who yeah. who who we'd been watching, actually, yeah, we'd been watching training, and and again, one thing that stuck out for me was just how dedicated he was. He was very routined. He he was doing the extra bits. He spent a lot of time on the practice court, but Evan played a great match and beat him three and three, and to be honest, exposed his forehand a little bit. Um and right, okay. the next week he made final of a challenger. So the next week, we're not talking about like a few months. The next week, and then he went on his run. Yeah. Then he went on his run, and that was Yannick Sinner. And and then at the start of this year, we were Rafa Nadal's academy for the 15Ks, and Alcaraz was there with Juan Carlos. And again, he had an aura on the practice court. I kind of had to, had to ask, actually, who is this kid? Um, and he, he won both events. And again, Evan played him in the semi-finals. And we'd watch Billy Harris, a British boy, almost beat him in the quarterfinals. And I thought Evan played a great match against him, but lost four and four. And he was about 500, 600. And I turned to one of the boys and they said, this guy's a shoe in top 50. And I give him 12, 18 months, he'll be top 100. And they said, no chance. And and even during COVID, he's already 120 in the world. Um, and he's obviously yeah. had six months out. So he he's absolutely the real deal. And people are, people are going to see a lot of Carlos Alcaraz. I think I saw a a graphic where they they had the if the points had come off in a normal year. I think I think he's he would already be top seventy. I think yeah. Um, it, it, in a normal year yeah. So with people's points cut off, that they obviously not been able to defend. So. Yeah, and he's yeah no he's I, I've got a lot of belief in him. He's good. Two thousand and three born. 
scarier. Yeah, it's crazy. It is very scary. <laughs> scary. But then we, we, we Britain have got another uh, good youngster in, in Jack Draper. I think yeah. Jack's very good as Jack's well. Jack's very good, he is. Uh, he's about 2001, 2002. Um, so, yeah, I, I know they 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 had a, a match at the Royal Albert Hall about this time last year, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and, 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 and Jack beat Carlos there. But, yeah, no, there's the, the level's just... It, it, it's gone through the roof. Yeah. I just... Yeah, it just everybody's got weapons. Everybody can move. Everybody's so tough. It, it's yeah, it's crazy. The level. I think in the next ten, fifteen years, we're in for some real treats. Gone are the days. Gone are the days, John, when I could just hit my little chip backhand and hope the fact that by adding pressure, mm. by coming forward, it might get the job done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, the old, the old and charge. <laughs> Quick fire round, John. Favorite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. Three or five sets at a Grand Slam? Five. Should there be a net cord rule? Should should we play let? No, there shouldn't. Be. There shouldn't be. Injury time out or not? Yes. Is your favorite movie Jerry Maguire? <laughs> no. Oh come on, John. I'm, you'll be- <laughs> you, you'll be you'll be surprised. It's actually a boring one. My favourite movie of all time is JFK. I'm going to just tell everyone it's Jerry Maguire anyway. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. ATP or Davis Cup? ATP. Will Nick Kyrgios win a Grand Slam? Yes, I think he will. Which one? Uh, Wimbledon or US? Oh, imagine, imagine, imagine him winning at Wimbledon. Wow. What what what's one rule change that you would have in tennis? That's a good one. Um, no warm ups. And I'm going to do a little thing with you here. You mentioned brand alignment, so a little bit of fun here for our listeners. I'm going to name a tennis player, and you're going to tell me the brand that should be aligned with that tennis player. Okay. I've thrown this on you, John. Okay. Sorry, but the first thing that comes to mind: Rafael Nadal. Uh, Iberia Airlines Novak Djokovic Hublot because his timing's unreal sorry that's terrible <laughs> Serena Williams Powerade Roger Federer Ooh, uh, Moe, he, he's got it already Moe Chandon he's just yeah and Rolex, just, and yeah. Rolex as well. Yeah. It's just him. Credit Suisse, yeah. Lint Chocolate. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all of those things, isn't it? Uh, Bianca Andruscu. She's she's amazing. I love her. Uh, something called Beats. Yeah, it's Beats. good. I like it. Andy Murray. You say RBS. I, I don't know. I want to tuck him up, but there's um, Mother Care. <laughs> <laughs> and Nick Kyrgios. He's got some great brands. For him, he's a monster energy. Yeah. Monster energy or, or Red Bull. He's he's one of those guys. Um, yeah. He's already with Beats and Nike and yeah, monster energy, I think. And who should our next guest be, John? I think you should get one of my clients, Dasha Kazakina, my boss, Ivan Lubacic, or some of our clients, Borna Korich, Matteo Berrettini. Uh, some of those guys. So I'll, I'll happily set that up for you. 
Amazing. I'm going to hold you to that word, John. I've absolutely loved the chat, John, honestly, to, to get all of that insight, to see just a different lens from the sport, you know, and I think that's what all these podcasts have been about. There's so much goes into this amazing sport. There's so many great people attached to it. Sorry about that little edit at the end there. Uh, the world of podcasts is not perfect. And I was struggling to actually get the audio for the last couple of minutes. All you missed was me thanking John <laughs> and John thanking the podcast for, for having him on. It really was great. And how exciting is that, that the guests that he's talking about coming on and he's, he has already had those conversations. So I'm really excited to, to say we will be bringing all of those amazing guests to you in the next few weeks alongside many others. But a big thanks to John. Great to get that, that level of insight into the world of sports agents to, to really understand Nick Kyrgios a little bit more. And I guess my big takeaway from it, we're taking a guy who he played club county level tennis and he's made things happen. You know, he's gone, he's gone out there, he's coached some fantastic players. He's then found himself in situations which I'm sure he felt uncomfortable in, but he's found ways, you know, and I think too many of us sit back and, and like to say we wished we were doing something. Well, John very much strikes me and his CV would back it up as somebody that goes and does that thing. And I think there's a great message to take in that. Uh, it does seem like the world of tennis agents are getting more, it's getting more sophisticated. I thought it was very interesting the way that he talked about in football how the player doesn't really care who their agent is because... They're not actually paying them directly. It's the club paying them. I thought that was a really interesting point and just things that I guess we just wouldn't get to know unless we're speaking to someone in that field. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know I certainly did. If you are one of our loyal followers that are listening to this as soon as it comes out, please do have a wonderful, safe, happy, healthy Christmas. It's, it's a couple of days before Christmas. If you're listening to this in 2021, I hope the world is in a better place than when we made this. It has been a very challenging time. But thank you so much for the support that you continue to give to it. Again, I'm, I'm seeing the ratings and the reviews on the Apple Podcasts app which are just completely fantastic. And it's great to see the value that you're all finding from these podcasts. So thank you for that. But before then, I'm Dan Kiernan. We are Control the Controllables. <laughs>